meets us where we are. Um, I ask, Lord, that by your spirit, that you would uh, be with Zach, that you would uh, speak through him, and that we would uh, encounter you in unexpected and beautiful ways. Uh, please be with us this morning, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. I know we're small, but let's give a warm Scott's welcome. Thanks for coming out. Um, we're going to look in Matthew 13 and Matthew 28. So if you have a Bible or your smartphone and you want to find those places, Matthew 13 and Matthew 28. And uh, I, I hope to, to speak for, you know, 20 minutes or so uh, and then have a little time for Q&A uh, as we continue to think about these things. A young man came to Jesus. He was well-educated. He had worked hard. He had saved his money. Uh, and he was earnest. He went to church regularly. And he came to, the, to Jesus, and he, he told Jesus he wanted to follow Jesus and uh, uh, wanted to know how to have eternal life, how to, how to do life with God. And at the end of that conversation, Jesus said something unique to him that he didn't say to anybody else that's recorded for us. He, he said, you lack one thing. And the young man said, what? And the, and Jesus said, well, sell all you have and come follow me. And uh, the Lord Jesus put his, um, his wise finger on a spot in the man's life uh, of money. And uh, the man went away sad because he had the evidence of Jesus right in front of him. He had the picture of what it would mean to walk with him. He had experienced miraculous things. He encountered the veracity of Jesus' teaching. Uh, evidence was everywhere for him. But at the end of the day, it wasn't about evidence. It was a question of money. And uh, this man's doubt, that is, um, I, what I mean by that is he trusted his money more than he trusted the evidence of Christ. He held on to the money, let go of Jesus, and walked away. But Jesus loved him, uh, it says. This, uh, this uh, is an important aspect of thinking about doubt, that sometimes um, the issue of doubt isn't really about evidence. Sometimes it's about something that we would like to have, that we believe we will have to let go if this thing about Jesus is true. Uh, I experienced this in my own life uh, with a very dear friend who uh, has uh, uh, come to believe in Jesus, but it was a long road, and a part of his objection, he would just say plainly, what was so wonderful about him is just his honesty, he would just say, he was a handsome guy, uh, he enjoyed the weekends, because uh, each weekend he hooked up with various women, and uh, he just said plainly, if I follow Jesus, it seems like I have to change my sexual ethic, and he said, and he said I'm not getting any younger, I want to be able to enjoy uh, women and enjoy sex while I'm still somewhat good looking and still vibrant and all that kind of stuff and uh, I just don't want to see uh, that wasn't a question of the problem of evil or the veracity of the gospels or that was a question of a, a want a desire in his life more uh, culturally wonderfully a, a philosopher named Thomas Nagel has wonderfully been very honest he just said this I want atheism to be true it isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief it's that I hope there is no God I don't want there to be a God 
I don't want the universe to be like that. It is just as irrational to be influenced in one's beliefs by the hope that God does not exist as by the hope that God does exist. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want it to be true. So sometimes when we think about doubt, uh, you will encounter um, a friend or a neighbor or a co-worker and they will ask you various wonderful, important questions about contradictions in the Gospels or something about the resurrection and how can we know or an epistemological question, how can we know anything and things like this and we'll try <laughs> in our flawed way to give uh, plausible, credible, important answers to those things. But you may discover uh, that with some of those dear friends that regardless of what you answer, if it's answered, they then shift to something else. And that can give you a clue. Uh, this probably isn't about finding answers. Um, this is probably about the unwillingness to change. And uh, you might see that in your own heart, too. I certainly have seen it in mine. So sometimes we have desires that keep us doubting. And that takes us to Matthew chapter 13. This is the parable of the soil and the seed. And Jesus uh, points out three reasons why people doubt God. Three soils that uh, do not take hold of God's word when it comes to them. And the first is they have an experience with evil. And that's in Matthew 13, verses 18 and 19. The Lord Jesus said, you know, hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes, snatches it away, what has been sown in his heart. And this is what was sown along the path. There's an experience with evil. And that can be a direct experience or uh, an indirect one. But this problem of evil snatches away the word, the personal devil that actually exists as well as all that is represented and uh, the outworking of all of our sin uh, in the world. Now, we've been talking about this uh, yesterday in the morning and the afternoon. This is what we've looked at in Thomas. It's what we've looked at with the folks on the road to Emmaus, that their doubts uh, were because they were experiencing evil. They were seeing evil. They were having evil done to them. Uh, they're, they're one of their good friends taking his own life, uh, the leaders in the church, uh, collaborating with evil, uh, someone like Peter pulling out a sword and wanting to do battle and then denying he ever knew Jesus, uh, seeing the one they loved brutally crucified, murdered in front of everyone, taunted and mocked uh, when he had done nothing wrong and no one to stop it. And so they encountered evil. And that evil, we've said, uh, uh, force them to have to do DTR. They have to define the relationship. Wait a minute, who is God? What does it mean that God doesn't stop things like this? Uh, who are we? What is the nature of life? What does it mean that we're capable of things like this? And uh, we step back and have to walk through that. And some of us have to walk through the personal trauma, the actual effects of trauma from evil done to us. And having to... Uh, do a day with the effects of trauma in our body and in our minds uh, causes us to wonder, um, is there a God? Is Jesus real? Is, what is this? Uh, is he good? That's what we've been talking about the la yesterday, the, this first experience with evil, which snatches the way the word of Christ from us. 
I just want to say one more thing about that, and then we'll move on. And that's this. There's, uh, in, the, in Christianity, the Lord Jesus, uh, at the height, the central moment of Christianity and the central moment of history, our Lord Jesus is on the cross. And he does there what no other religious figure does. In his death, uh, on behalf of others, he says, my God, my God, why? Why? Why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, um, Jesus not only takes our sins upon himself and pays for them, he also takes up the cry of the victim. He takes up the cry of the ones who've been sinned against and advocates for them before the Father. That's a remarkable thing, that the central moment of the Christian uh, story addresses the most ancient of questions. If there's a God, why doesn't he stop suffering? And Jesus gives voice to that right at the heart of Christianity. I don't know any other religion that does that. I, I don't know any other religious leader that does that. I don't know any other religious teaching that does that. So uh, this experience with evil and the questions that come from it lead us to doubt. And we have an advocate in Jesus. This is why he welcomes us to bring such things to him. The second desire, uh, the desire... Uh, the first is this desire uh, that comes from wanting out of evil and the experience of having evil. The second is the desire to belong or the, the desire for safety, for security, or the desire for approval. It's the second soil, Matthew 13, 20 and 21. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself. He endures for a while. When tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Uh, as soon as the culture disincentivizes following Jesus, as soon as there's no incentive to follow Jesus in the culture, this person falls away. Now, they were going to church, uh, to use that, that sort of language. They they received it with great joy. These are people going to Bible studies and small groups. These are people in chapel. Uh, these are people that are seeking the Lord, and they talk about him, and they have about with great joy. But as soon as it costs, it will cost them approval in the culture. It will cost them relationships in the culture. It will mean that they are considered an outsider rather than an insider if they hold on to this uh, identity in Christ. Uh, if that uh, should happen, Jesus says, these folks fall away. That is, they trust belonging uh, to a cultural approval more than Jesus. They doubt Jesus in contrast to trusting belonging. This is what's happening in Matthew 28, verses 11 through 15. You remember this story. While they were going back to history here, uh, after Jesus is raised from the dead, the tomb is empty. The soldiers have lost the body. The soldiers, Roman soldiers, don't know what to do, which means that their life is now on the line. They will die. 
While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. They said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. What you have is uh, Roman soldiers who have, who have no answer for the empty tomb. They know they didn't remove it. They know the disciples didn't move it. Something pressed them back. They have uh, an, an, an evidence uh, of experience they can't explain. But they're willing. They're willing to lie for the sake of money. Now, I just can't be too hard on them, and I would invite you not to be hard, too hard on them. How much does a soldier make? Not very much. Uh, and they're constantly putting themselves in harm's way. They work very hard, and they're not compensated for it. And the opportunity here is to testify, give evidence to something you can't really explain. Putting yourself at risk of death or take the money. Go home. Tell your wife, hon, you won't believe it. You get to get that dress you always wanted or that, um, that farming equipment you always wanted. Uh, we get to go out tonight. We get to take a vacation. We have money for the kids to go to school now. Which would you choose? I <laughs> and so... Uh, threat of life, a little bit of money, a better day. They choose a little bit of money and a better day. That has nothing to do with the evidence. They have evidence you and I haven't experienced. But they choose, not according to evidence, but according to the practicality of what they need in their life. Now notice there's a desire for power and pleasure in that too. The Lord Jesus talked about this in the sower of the seed, he talked about it, the cares of this life, the deceitfulness of riches, and how that chokes out the word. And these uh, elders and chief leaders, these religious leaders, they've had evidence after evidence. I mean, they've seen Jesus heal people, but their response is when Jesus heals someone is they go out and scheme how to kill Jesus. So it's not a matter of evidence for them. They don't know where the tomb is. They're making up stuff about the disciples taking the body. They know that's not true. But you see, what would happen is they're like that rich young ruler. If they would choose to follow Jesus, there's going to be consequences because the synagogue has already made rules, according to John chapter 12. The synagogue has already made rules that if you identify with Jesus, you are put out of the synagogue. Now, what that means is you're also uh, necessarily, there are consequences in the community. And so what these folks are doing is trying to preserve their power. They could tell the truth, lose power. They could be honest, uh, tell the truth and lose power. They could lie and keep it. Uh, that's on display on our news today in all kinds of ways. That's on display in our own hearts. And so... Uh, these chief priests, educated, in power, a lot of schooling, community standing. 
They choose treasures that moth and rust can destroy. Good things like, you know, influence and a leadership position. That's an incredible thing to have. And uh, the opportunity for them, like, to uh, speak on behalf of the Lord and to try to make a difference in their community in a God-oriented way. I mean, what a privilege that is. And, uh, and yet, it becomes the thing they trust. I don't know if it was like that when they were little. You know, when these chief priests and elders, when they first started in their leadership roles, I mean, were they just earnest? Were they just glad to be there? Um, when did it happen to them that along the line that in the face of evidence, they would choose according to their desire instead, their desire to hold on to their power? they trusting a good power, but they're making it an idol and bowing to it which means they let go of the better power, Jesus. They're trusting the pleasure of money and material things and all the enjoyments of this life that God's given us. They're, but they're making that an idol. It's like a, a watermelon, trying to use a watermelon to play soccer. A watermelon is a good thing. It tastes great, it's wonderful, or a cantaloupe if you prefer. Just really wonderful. It just wasn't made to play soccer with. You're trying to use it for something it wasn't made for. And the first time you kick it, it will explode. It can't come through. It can't uh, sustain the game. And uh, the good things in life are like that. Wonderful, tasty, enjoyable. But when we try to use them for what they weren't meant for, they can't sustain us. But here they are, trying to hold on to that anyway. Finally, this desire uh, to know about God in the midst of evil this desire to hold on, hold on to uh, approval and belonging and a good life in community, this desire to hold on to power and not lose out on material things, these things sit beneath our questions and drive us often more than the evidence or the answers given. And in response to that, there is a fourth soil, Matthew 13, 23. It's the one who hears the word, understands it, bears fruit. And you think, how did that happen? Well, somehow in the midst of experiencing evil, somehow experiencing the loss of belonging and approval, somehow experiencing the loss of a certain kind of material life that they could have known or would have had, somehow they've been willing to lose some of that for the sake of holding on to Jesus. Uh, and they've borne fruit in the midst of that. Now we can get a mistaken idea, and I want to just sort of end with this thought and then have Q&A. We can have a mistaken idea about what it means to survive this onslaught of these three soils and get to the fourth one, and uh, this person is bearing fruit. We, we could really look at that person um, as a marvelous hero, uh, which we should, a marvelous hero of grace. <laughs> uh, it's grace that's left him there. But look in Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 and 17. I just want to highlight something we often overlook. This is the Great Commission. This is where the Lord Jesus sends out his disciples. They're to teach all the things he's commanded. They're to go into all the worlds. Uh, his promise that he'll always be with them and never forsake them. Just uh, don't overlook verse 17. When they saw him, they worshipped him, 
but some doubt it. We know Thomas doubted. Why does it say some? There they are. There's 11 of them. That means they have a story. There used to be 12. This is a ragged bunch. They've been through a lot. And there they are at the mountain with Jesus, and they're worshiping. And yet there they are looking at a post-resurrected Jesus, and they're still saying, what is this? Is this for real? And some doubted. Who else doubted? Was it Philip? Was it Peter? Who was it? But what you see here is that Jesus calls this bunch that have a story. They've had to be forgiven. They've sinned. They've made mistakes. They've lost one of their friends. They're surrounded by challenge in the culture. He invites them to worship. And notice how he receives them with the brokenness of their story and the presence of their doubts. And notice who it is he sends out into the world is this worshiping, broken, doubting bunch. That's who he sends. Is that you? Do you have a story? There once was 12, now there's 11. And you have to tell if someone asks about it, about Judas and how you yourself ran and what Peter did. And you got to tell this whole broken story. And you wish you had a story different than the one you have. But you're worshiping. And Jesus knows you and you know him. And you've bringing all the faith you have, but you doubt and he knows it. The fourth soil, the ones that somehow by the grace of God, and it is only by His grace that they make it through these three soils and bear fruit. Uh, this is what they're like. Broken, storied, and worship. The presence of doubts along with their faith. Being sent by the one who loves them, who will never leave them or forsake them. It was uh, Bertrand Russell, the famous uh, one of the atheists that we know, the great atheist philosopher. He was once asked why he, what he would say if he found himself standing before God on the judgment day and God asked him, why didn't you believe in me? And, and he replied famously, I would say, not enough evidence, God, not enough evidence. And of course, many of us would say there's plenty of evidence. But even with evidence, people might still doubt because of something they don't want to let go of and that they trust more. And that's what we're looking at today. And when we talk about doubt and faith, we, we want to learn to account for that in our own lives and in the lives of others. Let's say a prayer. Lord, thank you for your word, and we ask that you'd continue to open our hearts and minds to it. We thank you, Jesus, for the way you call us to the mountain to worship. We thank you for the way you welcome us in our doubts and the brokenness of our story, how you forgive and heal. We thank you in your precious name. Amen. We have a, a few minutes here um, just for anybody who might have a question. I would love to welcome your question and listen to what you might ask.
What does it mean to be faithful in seasons of doubt? It's a wonderful question. And maybe Matthew 28 can be a guide for you, for us, a mentor to us uh, as we find ourselves in that story and learn from how Jesus related to those who went before us. It looks like coming to worship the Lord, continuing to respond in his direction, in community with the others. It looks like having a broken story and having and not avoiding it or denying it. It looks like uh, knowing that the community you're with is a part of that broken story. It looks like Jesus knowing you so well that he knows you doubt, so you bring all the faith you have, even if it's an oatmeal flake or a quinoa size, and you bring the doubt you have. And then you follow him with that. He's, he calls you to go, and so you do. And you, you seek to teach what he's commanded. And you seek to take hold of that promise that he'll never leave you or forsake you. And, and then you get up the next morning and do that again. It's something like that. Some people see doubt as a virtue. I'm going to address that tomorrow morning. Uh, but I'll just highlight now that uh, uh, doubt becomes trusted. Uh, and cynicism becomes uh, our authority. And um, when that happens, uh, lots of things result that can't come through for us. So we're going to talk about doubting our doubts. And how cynicism gives us a capacity to see what's wrong so that we can protect ourselves. But it has no capacity to see what's beautiful or right or good so that we can flourish. So we'll talk about that in the morning. Is there a relationship between doubt and repentance? Yes. Uh, we may discover, as we're hinting at this morning, that along the way, our doubt isn't actually an honest asking, seeking, and knocking. Doubt as, I just don't know, and how do I make sense of this, and how do I grapple with it? We might learn that our doubt is actual unbelief. It's, it's actual resistance. Um, and so when, when evidence, if you will, comes and, uh, and we learn out, we learn, we begin to realize, oh my, you know, we're, we're Gollum, my pressure, I'm actually holding on to something in spite of the evidence 
of the loveliness of Christ. You know, now the issue isn't um, that I'm finite and human. I'm a creature who just needs help to know and to learn. Now it's an issue. I'm a, I'm a rebel. I'm I'm a resistor. Uh, I actually love something more than I love Him. And at that point, well, that's where the call to repentance comes. That a part of my seeking now I realize is repenting. And one place to begin with that is that I believe help my unbelief. That, that at, at, at minimum, you know, if someone doesn't know how do I repent, you know, you can, you can start there. I believe and I don't. Please have mercy upon me in that. Please forgive me for my unbelief. And then a prayer, uh, whatever it is, if I follow you, it will cost me. It will cost me sex, or it will cost me money, or it will cost me pleasure. It will cost me a place in that community. It will cost me some type of power. It'll cost, it's going to cost me in my family. It will cost me in some way. And I'm afraid. And, uh, and now you're confessing that and praying finally very really to him. The things he already knows. And you're, you're saying, I want to turn. Please deliver me. And uh, yeah, something like that. Yes, the question about the duality. I know things in my head, but I can't seem to experience or feel them. There's a, it's a wonderful question and a lot to say about that. But in very briefly, I'll just say first, um, uh, we are a, a lot of us are in an environment in which we're accustomed to looking at things and using statements. So we know that God is omnipotent, he's omnipresent, and, and he's omniscient, and those uh, doctrinal statements really matter. Uh, but they, they can't give us the feeling of the thing, they just tell us what's right. And so I'll ask you to consider that uh, what we, we equally need metaphor. Because poetic speech is what gives us the experience of a thing. I can say it's... Um, 32 degrees outside. I can say it's very cold outside. But none of that gives you the experience of the thing. To give you the experience, I would have to say, even, you know, even an, uh, the squirrel on the tree is shivering. You know. Uh, I'm just drawing upon C.S. Lewis right now, by the way. And so, uh, we need metaphor. And thankfully, that's what the Lord gives us. If you want to know what God's like, in terms of biblical language, you won't find omnipotent omniscience, right? God is like a rock. God is like a tower. God's like a father who had two sons. God's like a, a woman who lost her coin, who's searching for it around the house. God's like a shepherd, you know. Um, and you, you, the only way to make meaning, experiential meaning, uh, is by that kind of language that the Holy Spirit has given us. And that the Holy Spirit uh, empowers. 
Others of us, so that's one thing, are the way we're conceiving of God has been more uh, abstract and defined and we're impoverished as it relates to the metaphor of what he's like. Uh, for others of us, um, because of circumstances in our life, especially the encounters with evil, uh, experiences with evil, trauma, and things like this, some of us will have faith but not assurance. That's an old-time uh, Puritan way of talking, Westminster Confession faith way of talking, um, that we have faith but we don't feel it. We, we can't access this feeling. And so what we do is we rely upon those in community who do. Trusting that as we continue to lay, I mean, we feel a lot. We're just not feeling the joy of it, you know. Trusting that as we're laying all of the negative experience and feeling toward the Lord and community and all the ugly prayer and crying and trauma responses that that involves, that in the course of that, um, the, the, the way that he undergirds us beneath all of that, he'll gradually give us the taste again of his goodness. Because our great hope isn't that we feel that he's near. Our great hope is that he is near, whether we feel it or not. But we do, uh, he has made us to taste and see that he's good. But in the midst of trauma, that just doesn't come easily. So what that looks like is uh, maybe you're, uh, you're singing in chapel, and uh, what wondrous love is this, and you can't access any, it makes no meaning for you. You can't feel it in any way because you've been treated without love, and that's all you can feel. You assent to it, you know it by faith, but you can't sing. All you can do is your head drops and you start to cry. What one, when I was sinking down, sinking down, sinking down. When I was sinking down, sinking down. When I was sinking, and by that point you're just like this. But the person next to you is singing off key with all their heart. And in that moment you rely on their, your community. You rely on what they feel. And you hold on to what you believe. And a time will come where it will reverse. And they'll need you. And that's part of the means of grace God's given to you. Well, I think we're at our time. And uh, thanks so much for your thoughtful questions. And thanks for being willing to come and think about these important things with me. I appreciate that. So everyone's free to go. <laughs>